The following is a presentation of the National Football League and the Chiefs Radio Network. Touchdown, Kansas City! Dawson, quick count. Dawson, close sideline pattern. Taylor, Taylor, look! 30, 25, he cuts back, 20, he's going to go! Touchdown! The formation breaks up. Cut off Addison's tight end on the left side. Hayes and Garrett on the setback from either side. Turns around, takes the hat off. He's still got the ball. Drops back to the 30, throws into the end zone to Richardson. Complete touchdown! Over the past century, many individuals have participated in the game of football. For some, the game made an impact to their way of life. They were the players. For others, they made an impact to the way the game was played. They are the legends. This is Legends, a Chiefs radio special presentation. Remembering Len Dawson with Bobby Bell, Willie Lanier, Jan Stenerud, and Mike Garrett. Dan Israel sits down with four heroes who carved the proud foundation of the Kansas City Chiefs for an exclusive conversation. Legends is brought to you by Century Roofing. Trust the pillars of strength. Trust Kansas City's hometown roofing team, Century Roofing. And by Quad Power Products, your one-stop shop for hydraulic equipment and repair. Quad Power Products at quadfluidpower.com. Now, here's the host of Legends, Dan Israel. Good morning and welcome to a very special Chiefs Radio holiday broadcast. Over the next three hours, we'll explore an exclusive roundtable discussion with four Kansas City Chiefs legends. Former Chiefs linebackers Willie Lanier and Bobby Bell. Alongside Bobby and Willie, the first place kicker to be enshrined in Canton, Ohio, the great Jan Stenerud. And the running back whose Super Bowl rushing touchdown would become as legendary as the men who forged it. Chiefs great running back Mike Garrett. Bobby and Mike were part of the 66 Chiefs in Super Bowl I against the Green Bay Packers. Willie and Jan would join them for Super Bowl IV's contest against the Minnesota Vikings. The legacy of the 1969 team would inevitably put nine of the 22 Kansas City Chiefs enshrined in the Pro Football Hall of Fame, the second most contribution from a single squad in the history of professional football. Our discussion is varied and frank. We'll of course talk about their late great teammate and friend, Hall of Fame quarterback, Lynn Dawson. We'll also touch on the thoughts of several other teammates, including Buck Buchanan, Jim Lynch, Otis Taylor, and more. You'll hear an unedited and forthright discussion about each of their paths through the NFL during a very racially segregated time. You'll hear behind-the-scenes stories, what it was like in the locker room and in the huddle out on the field of those epic games. And, of course, we'll have a few laughs along the way as well. I cannot express my sincere thanks enough to each of these gracious gentlemen for their willingness to just sit down and let me pitch unknown questions to them. But as you listen back to their recollections of building this great league we enjoy today, one thing becomes incredibly clear. These four men were part of a very special locker room family. They were the root of the Kansas City Chiefs culture that continues today. Please enjoy this holiday special we are calling Legends. Gentlemen, thank you for your time today. We're going to talk about so much. Uh, I want to talk about racism in the NFL. I want to talk about Super Bowl One, Super Bowl Four, and I want to talk about your teammates, which is where I'd like to start. Like so many fans, the loss of Lynn Dawson left us with an immense sadness. Before we talk about your time with this legend, 
I want to get your thoughts about the incredible moving moment when the 2022 Kansas City Chiefs lined up in the choir huddle, something Lynn Dawson made famous with you guys. The quarterback will be Patrick Mahomes to start the game. The Chiefs are in the choir huddle. They use the Len Dawson choir huddle as a tribute to the late Len Dawson. Delay game. Offense. Number 16. That's a five-yard penalty. First down. They take a five-yard delay of game. They do not call the timeout. That penalty is declined. And Mahomes was in the choir huddle to pay honor to Len Dawson and then ran off the field. So that's all we'll see from Patrick Mahomes tonight. But what a classy move by head coach Andy Reid and Patrick Mahomes. The Packers also paid their tribute to Lynn by not accepting the delay of game penalty. And of course, the ref added his thought by calling the penalty not on number 15, Patrick Mahomes, but number 16. How fitting was that moment? Well, acknowledging the passing of someone that we knew over our entire lives and had significance with the way he conducted himself, participated fully in life, enjoyed all those moments that the good, the bad, the ugly, the pain, the suffering, the joy, and the elation that comes from all of that is just a, a way if, as they were offering an expression of who he was and how he was defined as the commander, I would call it. Someone who has the full view of others positioning themselves to observe and then just having the total respect and command of that group. So yeah. that was, uh, I think, a very appropriate way to acknowledge Bobby, if you had to describe Lenny to someone who didn't know him, how would you describe him? Well, you know, it, it, I think it'd be hard to describe him because Lenny was in himself, you know. He was a guy that everybody, that kind of looked, he walked in the room, you know. He's friendly to everybody. He shake hands. And, you know, I got to know him a little closer because uh, we did a lot of things together. And uh, I got the uh, opportunity to visit with him. I just thank God every day that I had an opportunity to visit with the guy on the side and talk about things that we ordinarily don't talk about. And he would do that, you know. And here's a guy that could play any sport or do anything. I asked him about tennis. You know, hey, I can play tennis. And he would do it, basketball, baseball. That's the type of guy. And that's the way I was, too. And we talked about it. Also, we talked about, you know, quarterback. You know? Uh, I came out of high school as a quarterback. And I said, I mean, I, you know, I ended up playing at Minnesota, you know, my freshman year as a quarterback, as a black quarterback. Wow. And I said to him, I said, uh, they switched me, you know, and uh, I said, Lenny, it's just, uh, just unbelievable. And he talked about it. I said, you think that uh, one of these days, you know, I used to talk about with, with one of these days, will it be ready for a, a black quarterback in the NFL? You Gosh, know? Yeah. And he goes, Oh, yeah, in one of these days, you know, because we got some great athletes out there. And look at it now. I mean, change. And that's what Lenny was. And I, I just enjoyed just visiting with him on the side, you know, away from the game and talking to him. And we travel in the car or something together. You get an opportunity to visit with a guy the other side, you know, when nobody else is around. And I just thank God for having given me the opportunity to do that with him. Mike, you took the handoff from Lenny. Uh, just talk to me about what he was like in the huddle. Well, one of the things is our offense, we, were, we ran the I-formation offense, and that's the same thing I ran in college. And the thing that I liked about Lenny was that um, he was always so in control. He was also very thoughtful. He would look at you in the huddle, and you'd get eye-to-eye with him. And um, he knew what he was, what he's going to do, and he wasn't afraid of what, he's, what he had to do. But more importantly, he, we felt like a team in there. We had 11 guys. We were all... They're in that huddle, and he's facing us all. 
it's very important the quarterback showed no fear, and he certainly didn't show any of that, and he seemed to be under control, which gave us continuity as a, as a team, 11 guys on offense. I always thought it was unique that, you know, Lenny was so quiet but confident. He wasn't a demure person. He was just quiet. And a lot of people, I think, mis- mistook that if you didn't know him. Jan, I want to talk to you about, we use this word teammate all the time, man. Uh, business, it's used ridiculously. And in my opinion, I've been able to see just a little bit of what's inside the locker room from this young group, this 2019 team, comparing it to the rest of my 32 seasons. It's different. That 2019 team in the locker room made me see what truly the word teammate means. What kind of teammate was Lynn Dawson? Well, unlike the other guys here, I wasn't in the huddle with him too often. I didn't play the game. But you guys roomed together, right? Well, the last couple of years that he played. But when I watched him, I watched him a lot off the field. I was watching how he handled himself when he met people. And I watched how polite he was, how cool he was, kind of. And he didn't look like a, you know, like a Bo Jackson athletic. It wasn't built like that. But I also realized he was a great athlete. He started playing racquetball. He had great footwork. I just watched him, how he handled himself, being famous, how he dealt with people. And he was the oldest guy on the team. And I didn't know I was brand new in this business. All of a sudden, I come from a small school. I'm a skier. And I'm thrown into a situation where you walk into a store and people know your name. And I didn't know even how to act. So I was watching him and see how he handled things. And he was calm and collected and cool. And he was polite. And I just admired him for the way, the kind of individual he was. He looked like a banker when you watched him in the <laughs> yeah. coat and tie walking down the street. But every situation he was in, they were very different. But he handled himself with grace and dignity. He was just, yeah. And you kind of, kind of learn from him and see if you can maybe handle yourself in a similar manner that he did. One of the things I think we, no one talks about, Lynn, is that uh, that quietness, he showed strength. Yeah. And that's the thing that he had to have in our huddle. And he looked at us, be very quiet, call the play. But it was a sense of strength, and it was something that, you know, we had to play to be on this team and play with a guy like Lenny. It was a lot of good feelings in the whole process. I was marveled at that. The thing about Lenny, you know, I, one of the things I liked about him, you know, he would listen to the players. The players would come back to the hall, you know. I, I love it when they, a player come back and say, hey, Lenny, say, I can beat this guy, and you know, let's do this and do it. And he would change it. He'd say, okay, we got it. We would do it. Yeah. Change the play. They don't do that now, you know. Now, <laughs> they, the, now the, they gotta wait for the thing come through the helmet or something like that, you know. You, what are you doing out there? But Lenny was—he was so cool about things, you know. I saw him in the jet game up in New York, you know. Was, I got pictures of him drawing the play on the ground, you know. The draw said, "Lenny, I can do it." Lenny said, "Oh, you think you can do that? Yeah." And he said, "Okay." Comes out there, and Otis would tell him in the hole or something like, "Hey, man, you're gonna." He said, "I call it. You up. This is it. Boom, touchdown." I mean, that's what he does. When you have guys like Chris Perfect, who's really smart, and Otis, and Gloucester Richardson, and Frank Pitts, and Fred Urban is playing tight end, believe me, they came back with suggestions, and Lenny would always listen to you, he looked at you straight in the eye, and really kind of interpreted, understood what you were saying, and that was a good feeling. He expected an accountability out of that, though, didn't he? If you recommended something, he expected you to do it, right? Oh, oh <laughs> I would say that's an understatement. That's, that's a, his understatement. Uh, yeah. I mean, if you mess up, you can go, hey, man, don't bring me no more plays. Uh, <laughs> you know? yeah, yeah. I mean, he won't listen to you no more. Yeah. I realize how difficult this is to answer, but is there one Lynn Dawson moment that stands out over the rest? I don't know. I wouldn't call it a moment. I think that the 1969 season, once he injured his knee in Cincinnati, that we, from a defensive standpoint, had an understanding that we had to play much better for the rest of the season. He had to be back to get in that playoff position or to have a chance to win this thing. So the confidence 
that we had to have, and I would say, I'll call it tightening the screws, we did. But we knew that he had to be back. So with that season unfolding and with him getting better and better, our continuing to hold guys completely under control, it was one of a confidence standpoint that we were going to take this thing because that's how we played. And it was really interesting that because it was the need for him to be well and then the confidence that we had in him that's the way he mastered his part of the game. It was really fascinating to have been a part of something like that and see it all unfold and come together and then have the outcomes be what it was. To be a student of that 69 season is really to understand what an amazing journey that was. Lenny goes down in Cincinnati, then Jackie Lee comes in and almost immediately goes out. And now you guys are your third string backup. So as a defense, you must have truly felt we got to keep these games close. I think as a defense, we told the offense, you know, Jan, kick a couple of field goals. We don't think nobody's going to score on them. And I think we held them three or four games there, you know, to one touchdown. And the rest of them were like nine. We'd be, you know, some teams. We felt that year that we had a pretty good defensive team. I'd say so. And and, and it's it just that uh, we needed Lenny back. We went through, what, three quarterbacks? Yeah, yeah. Three quarterback. We had who else? Who else? A guy from Oakland. Tom Floyd. Tom, Tom Floyd came yeah. in. Yeah. I mean, we was going through, and then we got Mike Livingston. You know, end up with it. John Ewart was here too. He John Ewart, yeah. Game. Tom Flores held for me, I remember, and we were kicking in Denver in the snowstorm. Remember, it was a lot of snow, yeah. and it was some crutches on the side. It was late October. And, of course, nowadays, they have, uh, that was before we broke in, the punters are being holders. So that season, I think I had three centers and four holders oh or whatever. And Lenny actually came back the first game he came back. He played in Buffalo. But he only came back to hold for me. I think I had five field goals. And we barely won the game. But then he come and start the other games. But the one game in Denver, I just barely met Flores. So Hank sends us in for a 54-yard field goal right before the half. And we make it. Have a, a snow all over the place. And Flores stands up and says, by the way, I'm Tom Flores. <laughs> oh <my laughs> he was my holder. But, but <laughs> Hank refused. When he got hurt, I thought it was a season-ending injury. And I think Hank refused to give up and called about every doctor he could find in the country and finally found the doctor. The city doesn't need surgery. He's going to be back in five, six weeks. Yeah, and it turned out to be quicker than that even. Jan, you certainly deserve to be the first pure place kicker in the Pro Football Hall of Fame. Of course, now you've been joined by Morton Anderson, and I'm sure that Adam Vinatieri, others will be considered. However, given that long snapping is a specialized position now, I would think we'll never see another Hall of Fame trio like you guys, center Bobby Bell, holder Lynn Dawson, kicker Jan Sinnerud, you guys are it. Me and Lenny, you're strategic. Jan's about that, you know. When I started snapping the ball, you know, I said, you know, you guys, you watch this. Jan, you can go for this. Is seven yard? Is it seven yards? We did kick seven yards deep in those days. Yeah. Later, it changed to seven and a half. Now they go eight. My rookie year, but before you start snapping, because EJ was pretty good too, but if it's seven yards deep, so I had six kicks blocked my rookie year. Then mm-hmm. we start moving back a little bit. Now they go eight. But Bobby could do it all. No. <laughs> go ahead. I want to talk about I know that yeah, the thing was seven yards. I said, yeah. And Lenny get there, he was holding. And the ball, even people don't realize that, but when when the guy catches the ball, if the strings don't hit him in the right hand, you know, he's got to be turning, you know. Right. And Lenny kept telling me, he said, man, your strings is over here at seven. That's when I said, move it back a foot. The rotation maybe a little bit more. Wow. So yeah. he catches certain parts, and so he didn't have to move it. But Lenny had, you know, he had huge hands. Yeah. So he could catch the ball. He's the only holder I ever saw. If it didn't hit him right there, he would turn it on the way on the way down to the ground. Yeah. 
the other hole they would put the ball on the ground if the string went right they tried to turn it right there and then your moment of hesitation is he going to turn it or is he not going to turn it but Lenny on the way down he would move the ball like this but very seldom when Bobby starts snapping he didn't have to move it too often because he had figured out the rotation the rotation of the ball so you were that consistent with it oh yeah that's fascinating I'm listening to this that's I mean really I mean that's that's fascinating. We had it down where Lenny would reach out and catch it. Is that strange don't hit him in the right hand? And like Jan said, you know, when he start to lay it down, he done this and he set it down and boom. And every once in a while we play a joke. Hey, throw a knuckleball back there. And Jan go <laughs> <laughs> he started shaking. Didn't want to give Jan any confidence, uh, no. I guess, did you? <laughs> And I told him, what did, what did I tell you guys? I said, we're all going to be all pros. Three. I don't think it's, a, it's nobody else in the league to have a you know, Hall of Fame center, a Hall of Fame holder, and a Hall of Fame kicker. You know, the first time I saw Lenny, I was in Orange Bowl. The Chiefs had brought me down. I was drafted by both leagues. So I was watching pregame warm-up, and I was watching, you know, Lenny. I was watching him hold, by the way, that, Oh, wow, that's different than college. This guy's pretty good. And from that first trip, Bobby, I remember four guys. I remember Jim Tyver mainly because he was so god darn big. Mm-hmm. Biggest man i ever seen. He has skinny legs and shoulders <laughs> about this wide. Yeah. Then I remember Lenny Bipkin holding the ball. And I remember Bobby because we had mechanical problems. So Bobby Bethard was going to fly me back commercially. And Mike, you were on that trip. Burford caught a touchdown pass late in the game. Yes. And you went on to go to Buffalo and beat Buffalo, and you scored a touchdown, but you ran backwards about 20, I don't know how far you ran, and you guys beat Buffalo 31-7, to and that gave you the right to go to Super Bowl one. You know, I just met you at the Orange Bowl, so now I watch television, and I go back to Montana State, and I say, listen, I met these guys. I met these guys last week in, at the Orange Bowl. I remember Bobby also because when Bobby Bethard wanted to take me back on a different plane, Bobby heard and he got his stuff off the show. He wanted to fly back with us, but we decided to stay on the team plane and made it back to Kansas City in good shape. So was Bethard? Yeah. He was scouting then. Yeah, I got I know that. Go back to draft. These guys were drafted earlier than I was. The draft in those days, Dan, I got a telegram in the... December of 66. Congratulations, you've been drafted in the third round of the AFL Redshirt Draft. It was my name, Kira Montana State Athletic Department. So after a couple of days, the athletic director calls me and said, look what I got here. That's how I found out you've been drafted. And it wasn't like the draft is today. Jan's comment would lead us straight into an amazing subject, not only about the drafting process back in the 60s, but about each of their unique draft stories. Still to come on Legends. And back then, you got to understand that there wasn't that many blacks in the NFL. I was going to go with the Vikings, you know. You're listening to Legends, only on the Chiefs Radio Network. Hi, I'm Steve Hetchpath with Quad Power Products, your trusted source for hydraulics, pneumatics, standard and metric fittings and adapters, and industrial hose. Plus, we have a full-service cylinder repair shop. Come see us on Hickman Mills Drive in South Kansas City, or call and speak with one of our knowledgeable sales staff at 816-965-8925. Find us on the web at quadfluidpower.com. Quad Power Products. We've been solving our customers' fluid power problems over 25 years. Century Roofing, your hometown roofing team, is proud to celebrate the life of Lynn Dawson. When choosing a roofing company, time is money, so choose the best. Century Roofing has been voted winner for best roofing company in Johnson County. You'll get quick and reliable service with outstanding technical expertise. We house all materials on site, so there's no unexpected delays. Be confident you made the right choice. Schedule an estimate from the best. KC-based and female-owned. Online at CenturyRoofingKC.com. Century Roofing, trust the pillars of strength. 
You're listening to Legends with Dan Israel, an exclusive Chiefs radio conversation. It's presented in part by Century Roofing. Trust the pillars of strength. Trust Kansas City's hometown roofing team, Century Roofing. Each of you have a unique draft story. Bobby, let's start with yours. On December 1st, 1962, the Chiefs pick you as the 56th pick of the AFL draft. Two days later, you're picked number 16 by the Minnesota Vikings in the NFL draft. And not to overlook your athletic abilities, even the Canadian Football League was interested in Bobby Bell. What led you to the decision to become a Kansas City Chief? The deal was that the, the Minnesota Vikings drafted like, a, I think it was the second or third round. At that time, 1962, you know, the AFL, and I didn't know anything about Lamar, nothing. I didn't know anything about it. I, all I know, I got drafted, you know, and I'm going to play professional football. And back then, you got to understand that it wasn't that many blacks in the NFL. And uh, I was going to go with the Vikings, you know. But I asked them for, you know, get me a guaranteed contract. And my coach at Minnesota told me, get a guaranteed contract. Because he knew something that I didn't know, you know. At that time, you know, it just that they had a lot of pressure on black playing in the NFL. But Lamar came. I, I never talked to Coach Stram. I never talked to Don Klossman. You remember Don Klossman? I called him Hopalong, you know. <laughs> And uh, <clears throat> I never did talk to any of them. I talked to Lamar. He came to Minnesota and asked me. He said, hey, man, we drafted you. I'd like for you to come play for the Dallas, Texas at that time. He said, Dallas, Texas. I said, well, yeah. I didn't know anything about him. That's how it started. From that point on, I never talked to the Coach Stram. I never talked to him. Lamar always showed up and said, hey, we want to sign you. Lamar gave me the best deal. Well, I'm sure it gave him satisfaction to steal you from the Vikings because Minnesota was supposed to be one of the original AFL teams until they jumped the fence to the NFL. That's the reason why he didn't want me to go. Whatever they're going to take. And, you know, when Lamar said, what it's going to take, you know. And my man told him, you know, he said, not a problem. He took care of the deal, you know. So I said, well, I mean, either be with him for a while, I'm going to be watering his grass or something if they fold up. (laughs) (laughs) Fortunately, it did not go that way. Mike, you were a little bit different. On your draft, you were drafted by both leagues as well. In 65, those drafts happened to be on the exact same day. I think the interesting thing about you is you were also drafted by the MLB three times. Yes. <laughs> how? Oh, what? First of all, what made you go football? What made you go Chiefs? And how hard was it while you were playing for the Chiefs and they continued to draft you in baseball yeah. not to be you know drawn towards that? Well, baseball was my first love, and um, I always thought I was going to be a baseball player. Of course, I played American Legion and all those sports uh, leagues before I got to high school. When I got to high school, they didn't cover baseball very well in high school, but they covered football. Mm. And so um, after my 10th grade year and 10, 11, and 12, by that time, everyone knew me as a football player. And um, But the Dodgers uh, drafted me, so did the Pittsburgh Pirates and and, uh, and uh, uh, Houston Astros. But um, at the time, I didn't have to go minor leagues to play football. I would go right out of college to play pro football. And the question was, could I make it in the NFL, being the size I was? And um, well, you won the Heisman. Well, I also well <laughs> even true. even That's after point. even after winning the Heisman, they were saying I was too small. I remember being uh, a meeting with the owner of the of the Rams right after my last game of the senior year against Wyoming. And he says, "We'll draft you number one if you promise to sign with us." And I said. Um, well, what are you going to pay me? And he says, well, we'll talk that after we, after you. <laughs> after you resign? After you uh, agree that you'll be our number one draft pick. And I said, well, I don't know who's going to draft me in the AFL, but why don't we do this after after the AFL draft, then you can determine what you want to do. He says, no, if you don't commit today, then I'll draft you number two. And I said, and you should draft me number two. Mm-hmm. 
And then after the, the AFL draft was going on, I couldn't understand why I was not being drafted. And not many people know this, but I was probably the last draft at the AFL draft really? in, in uh, 1965. And it was out because Al Davis had put it out that he had already signed me. So, so that's why the Chiefs didn't So it got to the last draft of the AFL draft, and I hadn't been drafted. And I, I heard this from Hank Stram says, well, we'll draft him. And that's what all came about. Thank you, Al Davis. My buddy? That's my buddy. <laughs> that's your buddy? Yeah, Al Davis is my buddy, you know. Was it a struggle? You were born and raised in L.A. Was it a struggle not to want to play for the Rams or the well, Dodgers? Well, I always wanted to play in the Rams. I'd seen the Rams play in Coliseum, and I just thought I played all my high school, my college games at USC. Our home field is Coliseum. So I thought I would be playing the Coliseum with the L.A. Rams. But luckily the Chiefs, and I didn't know much about the Chiefs, and other than they were the Kansas City Chiefs, and they had just moved from Dallas. And that's about as much as I knew about Kansas City. Fascinating. Very. Uh, Jan, your, your draft story, equally interesting. You grew up in Norway. You end up with a ski scholarship to Montana State. But how did this Norwegian skier make the jump to football? Well, I've heard this story so many times. Sometimes I wonder if my version <laughs> is the right one. But no, I was as a skier, ski jumper mainly and cross-country skiing. I played a lot of soccer as a kid. Played on teams since I was seven, eight years old. I was 19 when I left there. But part of my workout for skiing was always running the stadium steps. So I'd run the stadium step my freshman year, sophomore year, junior year. You'd not only run them, they'd jump on one leg, then the other leg on both legs. So before the last home game, my no, in the, during the, my junior year, I went down and joined the kicker. He was down on the, on the field kicking a few times. So I kicked with a toe like he did, and I noticed I could kick with tennis shoes. I kicked further than he did with a square toe. But after about half a dozen attempts, I asked him to kick with the side of your foot. Like you take a corner kick in soccer. I doubt if he knew what a corner kick in soccer was. Right. But he said, yes, you can. There's a guy for the Buffalo Bills. His name is Gogolak. Yeah. Gogolak. That was in 1964. Gogolak, he kicks with the side of his foot. Yeah. So I kicked a few times and hit it better than I, and I kind of enjoyed it. I played a lot of soccer. It was part of my work of around the stadium steps. The basketball coach of all people, Roger Kraft, his son Les Kraft, played at K-State. But Roger Kraft has seen me several times, even stopped by and held the ball for me. Can he do that with a couple of steps? And he ran over to the football coach there called Jim Sweeney, later coach at Fresno State. Jim Sweeney. And he said, there's a Norwegian skier out here that can really kick the football. <laughs> And he didn't know much, didn't think the basketball coach knew about football. But anyway, before the last home game in 1964, I was running the stadium steps. The team worked out in the stadium. 8,000 people the stadium held. Yeah. And Sweeney yells, he doesn't know my name. He said, hey, skier, get your butt <laughs> down here. Here you can kick. So I had to kick off for the first time in front of the team. Oh, my God. And I didn't know, I didn't know enough about football. I thought some of them were a bunch of overweight guys that weren't really good athletes. That's <laughs> how little I knew about it at the time. So a little bit nervous, kicked off on the 40-yard line, had a slight breeze behind me. It was 40 yards, it was 70 yards of the goalpost in the back of the end line. And the first time I topped, I didn't put the ball in the tee before, I kicked mm. it off the ground. Topped, it was a squeak kick. And they laughed a little bit, and Sweeney said, Try one more time. Hit it perfectly, went high through the goalpost into the bleachers wow. behind the you know playing field. And I did that three or four times. And Sweeney puts his arm around me and he said, uh, young man, what are you doing tomorrow? <laughs> <laughs> and I thought right away, uh, an uncle and aunt had immigrated to America in the 1920s. Talked about America, the skyscrapers in New York, the big cars, the televisions, all the big the stuff. The land of opportunity. The land of opportunity, how people can work hard. It's the first thing that went through my mind. This is America. Maybe, who knows what's going to happen. <laughs> so anyway, I'm suiting up for the game the next day. I had ski jumped in front of 
80,000 people, but he wanted me to get used to the crowd there. Yeah. So I go off a spring game and I make the team. Yeah. I make the team. So, and I'm lucky. I, uh, my, my senior, I did both skiing and football. Football yeah. came in the fall, then skiing in the winter. But I was able to kick a 59-yard field goal, and it took him a week to find out. Next Friday, as a matter of fact, six days later, the Bozeman Daily Chronicle has a headline. Bobcat kicker sets record. Yeah. It turned out the 59-yard field goal broke the college record by five yards and the pro record by three. Oh, that's amazing. And that's why I get a telegram a week or two later from Jack Stedman <laughs> that I've been drafted by the NFL. Jack Stedman? It was signed by him, the telegram I got. Oh, really? Mm-hmm. Congratulations, you've been drafted in the third round of the AFL redshirt draft. See you in Kansas City next year. Signed Jack Stedman, president, Kansas wow. City Chief. A great story. Jan's talking about coming to uh, Miami, watching us play the Miami Dolphins. And um, I remember that very well because we were in the dressing room. This Norwegian kicker from Montana State was going to be kicking while we're warming up for the game. And um, we had... Tommy, Tommy, Tommy Brooker. Okay. And uh, we said, well, what happened? He says, well, he kicked him from 40, 45 yards. And we know Tommy Brooker, range was about 32, 30. <laughs> and we all looked at each other and says, oh, my God, does Tommy know this? <laughs> <laughs> and that's how I got introduced to Jan Stitterer. Yeah. <laughs> I remember I'd, I'd been drafted already. So I made up my mind I was not going to kick in pregame because they think I'm pretty good. But I had no chance against Hank. He had me out there, of course. <laughs> and I was kicking. I was young and I was nervous. I was probably, you know, keyed up a little bit too. So I hit him pretty far, you know, from midfield. And the, but that was that was only 50 yards. But I went pretty far through the goalpost. And place kicking was changed forever. Place kicking was not the only change on the horizon. By 1967, the NFL and AFL drafts would merge. While some Americans were celebrating the Apollo moon missions, others had been drafted into the escalating war in Vietnam. At home on U.S. soil, the fight for inalienable rights at the time coined civil rights. It was still a very segregated time in U.S. history. Riots were breaking out in cities like Detroit and Washington, D.C., states like Wisconsin and Ohio. Even the Boston Marathon became a protest refusing to allow women to participate. Willie Lanier's draft story would echo a league struggling to adopt the addition of black players in a society struggling to deal with human rights. Still to come on Legends. I'm an American citizen. It's eon between how I was treated coming to the National Football League and how Jan Stinnerud was treated. Century Roofing, your hometown roofing team, is proud to celebrate the life of Lynn Dawson. When choosing a roofing company, time is money, so choose the best. Century Roofing has been voted winner for best roofing company in Johnson County. You'll get quick and reliable service with outstanding technical expertise. We house all materials on site, so there's no unexpected delays. Be confident you made the right choice. Schedule an estimate from the best. KC-based and female-owned. Online at CenturyRoofingKC.com. Century Roofing. Trust the pillars of strength. I'm Steve Hedgepeth with Quad Power Products. People know us for excellent customer service for their hydraulic hoses, couplers, adapters, and accessories. We also offer hydraulic cylinder service, where besides resealing, we actually recondition your cylinder by honing and polishing all sealing surfaces. We also bench test each repair before handing it back to you. All of that with a full one-year warranty. Come to Quad Power Products in South Kansas City on Hickman Mills Drive. Find us on the web at quadfluidpower.com. 
The eye formation behind Ross, and he fakes the handoff, drops back to his pen and throws deep over the middle. Otis Taylor, it is completed the 50, to the 45. Miners get around Billy Baird and does. One to the 30, to the 25, eight to the 20, and hits from behind by Al Atkinson. And I don't know how he can downfield that far. Now, back to our exclusive Chiefs Radio Special. You're listening to Legends on the official broadcast partner of the Kansas City Chiefs, 610 Sports Radio. Once again, here's your host, Dan Israel. The following program is brought to you in living color on NBC. Evening, these are the world headlines at this hour. Right, China says it's ready to support North Vietnam in fighting the United There's States. There's a great temptation to become shrill about what happened here in Detroit. In, in Vietnam, American Airmen, Air Force, Navy, and Marine flew 145 missions over North Vietnam to stay in the second biggest race. Welcome back to our extraordinary Chiefs Radio special. My panel of guests were Mike Garrett, Jan Stenerud, Bobby Bell, and Willie Lanier. In the last segment, we heard Mike, Jan, and Bobby's draft stories. But as Willie began to tell his story, there were moments of revelation that I did not expect. In those revelations, I realized just how little I understood about those times. And perhaps the one aspect of Willie's Hall of Fame career that stands out the most is how much he and others like him had to persevere while being a lone advocate for themselves. Willie Lanier, your draft story takes place in 1967. The leagues have agreed to merge and stop fighting over talent, so 67 became the first common draft between the AFL and NFL. The Chiefs picked Jim Lynch from Notre Dame as the 47th pick. You were three picks later at number 50 from Morgan State in Baltimore, but those three picks might well have been different planets. Today, the league has the HBCU Combine, in fact, the first pick from a historical black college or university in the 2022 draft was by the Chiefs, who in the fourth round chose cornerback Joshua Williams from Fayetteville State. But 1967, a very different time in this country and consequently a very different time in the NFL. Right. All of it was an odd scenario in terms of what was done for the historical black colleges and what was done for the major colleges. I'm listening to Jan and how Jan was treated being a foreigner. I mean, you and I have talked about this. He's from Norway. I'm an American citizen. It's eon between how I was treated coming to the National Football League and how Jan Stinnerud was treated. Don't we talk about it all the from, time? From the, that whole history. So what happened is that I was not really someone who was enamored with sport. I didn't like playing a lot of sport. I didn't like lifting weights. I didn't like doing any of it. I played because I had a couple of brothers who played, and they enjoyed it, so I said, fine, I'm a kid. I'll enjoy it myself. All right, so at 15 years of age, in the 10th grade, I weigh 152 pounds. I don't make the varsity because I'm not big enough. So my grandparents are tobacco farmers. We go to the country, and I weigh 180 the next year. God gave me a little growth spurt. Boom. Not with any intention of my trying to be anything. So I play that junior year as a little offensive and defensive tackle. And prior to my senior year, my high school coach named Fred Cooper comes up to me and says, Son, I'm going to make you a linebacker. You have better lateral movement than anyone I've ever seen. And what did that mean to me? Nothing, really, because it's the coach saying it. But he said he saw something. So with that, my junior, my senior year in high school, I weigh probably 190, 195. I'm not heavily recruited because I'm not. And I agree verbally to attend college at Virginia State University, 20 miles from Richmond. But Virginia's segregated. Brown versus Board of Education, all that's a whole other story. Thurgood Marshall on his Mm -hmm. staff was not his staff, but Oliver Hill from a firm in Richmond. 
all of that was significant for me because I'm paying attention to things. So, so what happens is that in June of my senior year, I decide that I don't want to be in Central Virginia. My high school quarterback had been given a full scholarship to Morgan State. So I called the coach at Morgan State and told him I would like to go to his school. He said, son, I don't know anything about you. What do you need to know? I need film and transcripts. I go to school, send it to him. He's intrigued. I get on a Greyhound bus. I go up to Baltimore. And what happens is that I have to take the entrance exam, and I score in the top 10% of the incoming freshman class. So now he knows the mind is good, but he says to me, son, I don't have any scholarship. It's all been distributed. I said, I didn't ask you for money. I said, I want to go to your school. And whatever you have to do later, you will do, and whatever I need to do, I will be there. He said, fine. So So you you were a walk-on then? I was a walk-on, yeah. And what God did from the first week of June to the third week of August, when we started practice, God gave me 35 to 40 pounds. Boom. I stand up at Morgan State. I weigh what I weigh when I came to Kansas City. I'm 6'1", 245. And the rest of the story allowed me to then be sitting here. But with Lynch being the 48th or 47th player drafted, uh, my being the 50th, the money that Jan and Bobby and Mike can talk about, my story shifted because it was thought that I was a black kid from a black school who probably only wanted to do one thing in life, and that was to play somebody's football game, giving no credit to my knowledge. So because with that being the case, my senior year in college, I did a paper on the monopolistic aspects of pro football, the Sherman Antitrust Act, Emmanuel Seller, chairman of the House Ways and Means Committee, trying to fill the bus. I can spit it out like it was yesterday. <laughs> All right? And, and I told this to Mark Davis in Canton, Ohio, last year. He was fascinated. I said, Mark, that's who I was. If someone had taken a little time to ask some questions, they would have understood that I wasn't just a guy who played the sport. I understood what was what. And then for the Sherman Antitrust Act, because it's anti-competitive and that's why it's there, what occurred was that a rider was attached to an administrative tax bill from a congressman from Louisiana, and that's why the New Orleans Saints came to life the next year. Really? Hello, sir. How about that's that? That's my senior paper. All right. <laughs> so, 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 so what happens is that the first black executive in the NFL is named Buddy Young. Buddy Young and my college coach were high school classmates. Buddy Young was, came to the league in 1966. All contracts have to go to the league for their signature. Jim Lynch signed a very large contract, the 47th player drafted. Buddy Young pulled his contract, saw the numbers called. My college coach told us what the white kid in Kansas City got being the 47th, and I'm the 50th. It was a 90% difference in oh what was gosh. offered. That's, that's in for a 90% difference in what was offered to me. Bobby Bell had, had Lamar Hunt come to see him. Jim Lynch had Hank Stram come to negotiate with him for contract. I had a black scout from Kansas City who came to see me. <laughs> and, and, and I won't use words that could be used. No, I'll don't, use, don't, I'll don't use, use I'll words. use alphabets, <laughs> all right? So what occurs is that I'm expecting to have a discussion of what to expect off-season workout programs. The gentleman then offers me a contract bonus 90% less than what Lynch had already signed. The minimum contract at that time was 14000 for anybody who was drafted, undrafted. Jim signed for three years at 2020. He then said 14, 15, and 16, then had the unmitigated gall to look me in the eye, a graduating student at Morgan State College, and told me if I didn't take what they were offering, I could take my MFing A to Canada to play football. Oh my gosh. That was my introduction wow. to this world. As I sit with these other men who also came their direction, that was my beginning. 
So I told him, no one speaks to me that way. Three things will happen. I will not go to county to play football. You need to go back to Kansas City and tell me something wrong. Else will be to see me. And I, and I will sue you all. So I called the coach of the Kansas City Chiefs the next day. So let me explain something. I'm a graduating senior at Morgan State College. You all will not disrespect me. The draft that you all had means nothing to me. The only thing important to me is to graduate on time, and I will. I might not ever come to Kansas City. might not ever play pro football. You will not disrespect me. Bam. Did you get a call back? Yeah, that was a call back. Yeah, I bet there was. Yeah. There are two things that strike me incredibly about that story. One is anybody who's talked to you for two minutes, it's undeniably how smart you are. If you don't realize that, you're deaf or can't read lips, one or the other. But the second is you had to sell yourself the whole way, the whole way yourself. Yes. There weren't people coming after you. You had to literally promote your own. That's amazing. I, I looked out. I had somebody to look out for me, you know, my welfare, you know. And, uh, you know, the price that I came out, I, I deferred a lot of my money. And that's why I went to work, you know, to work for General Motors, you know. And uh, we, and I really know the story, you know. I said, hey, I deferred it. And, and we had a guy that, you know, always thought that they had control of plus the blacks, you know, and uh, it was just amazing. You know, I mean, I talked to me and Willie talks all the time about, you know, what went by because I came from the South also and uh, my school, you know, was a uh, high school. Hey, it was 168 in the whole school from first grade to the 12th mm. grade, you know. Didn't have a six-man football, and I get to Minnesota, and I, had, I'm, I was lucky enough to have somebody to look out for me, too, you know, and my welfare also. God been good to me, you know, knock on wood, you know, that, uh, and me and Willie, you know, we, we always share stories, you know. He came from an all-black school, and I ended up coming from, a, I went to Minnesota, you know, first time I ever seen that many people, really. Two percent black in the whole state, you know, it's a totally different thing, you know. Yeah. People don't realize I rode in the back of the bus too. Yeah, it's just you know they couldn't eat in a certain restaurant. You drink out of a certain water fountain, you know. And you know I talk to people now a lot about. I said, hey, we come a long ways, and uh, I know that me and Willie always always talking. We, I guess we what, talk maybe once every day or every three weeks that we talk. Oh well, yeah, yes, yeah, just about right. all the time, and we talk about stuff like that, you know. Football has come a long ways, man. It has, you know, but it's still interesting to me that a league that is predominantly, what, maybe 85% minority still struggles with racism. There are still, oh, yeah, and I, I realize that's probably somewhat a mirror of society, you know, but you would think in an environment where you have so many minorities that that tolerance would be different than it is. But it's, and I wonder too, if the players of today understand what you guys went through if they count their blessing with that, and because it wasn't easy for any of you. The opportunity to see, and I'll do this post our playing careers, Yon Center has been to Richmond a few times, and because of that being the former capital of the Confederacy, there was a street there, thoroughfare named Monument It's, it's called Monument Avenue. And it was funded by the Daughters of the American Revolution, and it was presenting the lost cause with all of these statutes along the street. And really, so, isn't that the street that you had to cross going back and forth yeah. to school? Yeah, so, 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 so with that said, I lived in the part of Richmond that you had to go from a segregated part of Richmond to a, another completely segregated white part of Richmond to get to the high school that you attended. And therefore, I had to cross Monument Avenue every day. And then you would look at the statues on Monument Avenue, and you would wonder what would be there for you if they had lost. Where would you have been? So the first time I'm a junior in high school, I'm on the way home, and you have to go from a black part of town through a white part of town, then back to a black part of town. A little eight-year-old white youngster sees me, and he's the first person to call me the N-word. Hey, mm, 
I looked at him and he said, hey, uh, decided to come here. And then I say to him, I'm not, I'm not that. George Floyd in Minnesota two years ago lost his life. What if that little boy at eight years of age thinking it was reasonable to call a black man those words? Now he ends up in a blue uniform 25 years later. Now he ends up in a blue uniform 25 years later with his knee on a African-American's neck. And with no presence of consciousness, acted as if though that could have been some animal in the wild. All right, so and I always appreciated Jan being from Norway, and we talked about these things because he's not, he's an American citizen now, but he wasn't when he first came here. So it was always interesting to just have his view of, gee. <laughs> was, know, it, was it dramatically different than Norway? Well, yeah. Of course, I went to Montana State, but I didn't see a black person up there. Yeah. And I, I could see what Willie and some of the people experienced here, and I thought, yeah, I can come right off the boat and go any place where I want to go, do anything I want. And, and he couldn't. Some way, so that it bothered me, and, it, and I didn't become a citizen until 1976. I've been there for 14 years, but that Scandinavia is a wonderful place to live. I'm proud of where I came from, the people over there. And uh, but it took me that long before I felt comfortable. And I, I think America is the greatest country in, in the world in so many ways, but we aren't perfect. No country is perfect. We still got a lot of work to do here or there. But I've been, I've been seeing to watch uh, the black and white. It, it surprised me a great deal when I got here. Yeah, what do you think about Bobby Bell Day in Shelby, North Carolina? Well, about a I year was, ago, huh? I was very happy to go down there. There's a Bobby Bell Day? Yes, it They is. had it named the biggest street in town, and we were down there a year and a half ago, right, in the summer, and I went down for the Bobby Bell Day, and the biggest street in town is now called the Bobby Bell Boulevard. I love it. You know, that's, that's just to go to show where, where we came. Before, I could not eat in the restaurants and stuff like that. I couldn't stay. I mean, you drink out of the different water fountain and all that stuff. To see it change, you know, they gave me a key back in 1962 to the city because I was all American, you know, I went to New York and all that stuff. They gave me a key to the city. They said, we'll send you the key. This time they asked me about coming doing this. And I said, they gave me a key, you know. He, he said, oh, they didn't give it to you? I said, no, they, I never seen it. They never sent it to me. Anyway, they got me a key. They had to go through a lot of trouble, you know, and the, the government and all that stuff. But the guy gave me the key of the day on the stage. Yonder, and we had three other Hall of Fame Willies there. We had people came down and talk, you know. And that pavilion is there now, right on the square, Bobby Bell Pavilion, you know. That's where I spoke. It was a wonderful day. And they gave me the key. I said, let me have the key. And uh, we flew down there. I called my buddies up there that flew us down at the power. I gave him the keys. I make sure this key get back on the plane <laughs> so I can get home, though. But, you know, the things have changed. It's amazing where we came to. Like, Jan is out a different place. Willie had a different thing. Mike was out in California, you know, saw different things, you know. But, you know, things are coming along, you know. But still, we have we have some problems. I do admire the NFL, the league's inspired change. And in it is a melting pot of, of sorts. But to your point, there's still a lot to go. And Oh, yeah. And, you know, I, I tell people this, too. If, if it hadn't been for Lamar starting that new league, you know, football would not be where it is today, starting that new league, you know. Mm-hmm. You know, because in Kansas City, we had, what, at one time we had 60, 70 percent blacks on the team, and everybody was going, wait a minute, what's going on here? I know Emmett Thomas, he ended up coming to Kansas City because he looked, saw that we had a lot of blacks there playing, and we were getting along together as a family, you know, and that's why he ended up coming to Kansas City. That's where he wanted to come, and that's what have changed, you know, the whole project around the whole league you got a lot of black playing football and i'm telling you if it wasn't for lamar starting that new league you know it wouldn't be like it is now well i I think you guys deserve a lot of that credit too for 
having the fortitude to persevere and create your own opportunities. They absolutely do. Men and women of all races owe a great deal of gratitude for the athletes who forged a path and broke down those once mighty barriers of race and gender. It's something we mostly take for granted now, but to the NFL's credit, it continues its efforts today to end racism. And though some disagree or think it's not enough, it remains a spotlight on how much is still to be done. In Hour 2, we'll look back at some of the greatest moments in the proud legacy of the Kansas City Chiefs. Still to come on Legends. They had more risk than we did. And the reason they had more risk is that they're going to have a first and goal at the one. But once their hand touched the ground, if anybody moves, they have to go back to the six. That means I can risk being offside to jam this thing up. So with that being the case, I have to decide if Namath doesn't go on first hut, he has to go on the second one. You're listening to Legends with Dan Israel, an exclusive Chiefs radio conversation. It's presented in part by Century Roofing. Trust the pillars of strength. Trust Kansas City's hometown roofing team, Century Roofing. By Quad Power Products, your one-stop shop for hydraulic equipment and repair. Quad Power Products at quadfluidpower.com. 